Welcome, Welcome from Alpha from to Alpha Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 27th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 9th of March 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today's guest is the jazz pianist, Marxist, and YouTube star, Brendan Cooney, who has blazed a trail for himself on YouTube with his totally cool videos explaining Marx's insights into the functioning of our capitalist economic system. He is also the man behind the Capitalism 101 blog, that's Capitalism with a K. We discuss the success or failure of the Occupy movement and its organisational structure, Marx's critique of the Gotha programme and the abject failures of the 20th century's attempts to overturn capitalism. If you'd like help support the show and hear your name proclaimed aloud for the ages, why not click on the donate button right there on the podcast website. You can also follow me on Twitter and also on Facebook, where you can join another 98 Lost Souls. We join the conversation as Brendan discusses his videos and how he first came to be interested in Marx. You know, like documentaries about how great the free market is, or like industrial propaganda documentaries about how great the machines are. It seemed like at some point companies were always making video documentaries about on shop floors and how awesome their machines were. And then there's all these cartoons by this guy named John Sutherland who just made all these ridiculous economics videos for, I don't know, lay people about how great the free market is. My videos might give the impression that I am just sort of spontaneously eloquent and knowledgeable, but each video represents a lot of very uh, pointed reading and then a lot of time spent trying to distill the ideas in clear terms. You know, I'd read some Marx when I was in college and, and then sort of considered myself a Marxist. And then a couple of years before the shit hit the fan with the U.S. economy, realized that I didn't understand as much as I thought I understood and I needed to do a lot more reading. So, yeah, I started reading. You know, when I was an undergrad in college, we were sort of discouraged from reading Capital and doing like hardcore Marxist economics. And we were sort of encouraged to do things like read David Harvey and Mike Davis and and read sort of contemporary social theorists that had Marxist flavors. So I'd read a lot of that stuff in college, but I hadn't actually sat through Capital. And I thought it was going to be a drag when I first picked it up. And I ended up really <laughs> digging the book and getting really into the more economic sides of, of Marx. So, Brendan, you're based in, in Boston. I was wondering if the Occupy movement had much of an impact there. I guess the question would be whether it had much of an impact anywhere. I don't know if I have too much else to say. I, I, I'm, I'm based in Boston. I've been here for only two years, and I actually won't be living here that much longer. I can only claim to have sort of marginal involvement with the Occupy movement here. I was never like a, a super active participant but more of a onlooker from the sides. It definitely seemed to mobilize a lot of people, but outside of the occupation itself, it's hard to see any substantial result of it. Do you think it might play some kind of a systemic awakening function? Well, I guess the question might be like, is the Occupy the beginning of some new moment for the left or some death thing of the left? 
And I think the answer to that question really depends on how we interpret and pick apart what happened during the occupation and what sort of lessons people draw from it. You know, obviously, there are a lot of positive things that are often set the Occupy movement. I don't know if it's necessary to repeat all of them, that there's been a change in the public discourse to some extent, that a lot of people who maybe weren't engaged in these politics before have now been uh, inspired to be part of a collective project, that the act of the occupation was um, sort of empowering for some people, especially young people, and maybe those sort of formative political experiences might play a role in people's future politics. But beyond those sort of feel-good, vague things, it's hard to see that any structure that's emerged from Occupy that it's going to be some long-term political structure and strategy for a left movements. If anything, it seems like the lack of structure in Occupy or the problems with this structure in Occupy have turned into this sort of this dissipating nothingness. It's hard to point to any clear forward motion. So once the physical location of the occupation was essentially destroyed, that everything else about it essentially just dissipated? It seems like it. And I'm not an expert on everything that's going on in the Occupy movement. But from the the few things that get the most attention, like the strike debt, for instance, it seems like the the few sort of forward-moving organizational structures are very reformist and unimportant. There's not any sort of enduring radical content that's moved forward since the occupations have ended. Do you think that the experiences of the participants in the Occupy movement who experienced the flaws in this organizational approach and the limitations of it will lead them to theorize or add to it or radically change this if they want to continue with any type of effective radical political action. I don't know enough to be predictive in that way about it, but I definitely know that there were a lot of voices in the Occupy movement all along who were very critical of the structure of the movement and wanted a movement that was willing to make demands and to have more organizational structure and to be a movement that was actively trying to intervene in society and not just trying to sort of exist as an autonomous bubble within society. And Unfortunately, the organizational structures of the movement were such that those sort of initiatives and voices were kept from having some, some sort of effectivity over the movement of the, of the occupations. Whether or not those voices will have more of an impact now that the occupation is over, it's hard to know. I don't really, I do know that there's this debate going on right now, like as we speak on the Occupy Wall Street website about the consensus and whether or not consensus is useful to the movement anymore, whether it should be abandoned, whether the consensus itself is a source of stagnation in the movement. And I think there's a lot of good critiques we can make of the consensus model of the movement, but I'm, I'm not even sure if the, the consensus itself is the fundamental sort of conservative organizational impulse of the movement, or if maybe there's something underlying the philosophy of the consensus that's maybe more of the source of inertia or diffusion or lack of forward motion to the movement. Consensus can have different practical, formal structures, just like voting or majority rules kind of voting can have different formal structures, and they're all tools toward a certain end. But it seems like for the Occupy movement, a lot of times it was the consensus as an end in itself 
that was sort of fetishized. And the act of playing out the so-called horizontal democracy, horizontal decision-making became an end to itself rather than a means towards some sort of social transformation. I think that was is part of the more fundamental problem behind the philosophy behind the occupation that kept it in essentially being a very conservative thing, Cons- not conservative political. Of course, we can critique the politics of different voices that were in the movement, but, but conservative in the sense that seemingly unable to move forward, like unable to uh, get from point A to point B, but always be stuck in the same same sort of routines. If we are talking about a radical politics, the nature of radical politics then perhaps is that it is a behaviour of the minority and that the fact that we have to try and look for a consensus somehow limits the effective motion of a radical organisation. I guess what I want to say is before we even talk about the problems with the consensus, I think there are problems, we should talk about why it is that there is a hyper-obsession with the horizontalism of the process that we're in, when perhaps the obsession should be with goals and strategy and creating bases of power within society by which we can challenge power structures. It seems that some of the philosophy behind the occupation was that they did not want to engage with the power structures of society, but instead to act as if we were already free to set up this autonomous space where we sort of play the game of freedom. And that somehow in itself is going to supplant the power structures around us by branching out into all these seeds of little communities that are acting as if they are already free and playing horizontal democracy. Uh, and then that somehow hollows out the system itself. You know, this comes from a particular type of anarchist thought. David Graeber just wrote this defense of consensus last week, and he's posted on one of the many Occupy websites now, and he has this quote. I wrote it down. He says this at the end of the article. The power of Occupy has always been that it is an an experiment in human freedom. That's what inspired so many to join us. That's what terrified the banks and politicians. So for him, in his perspective, the Occupation was an experiment in human freedom. It was this space where people were acting as if they were really free as human individuals and that this was what attracted people to the movement and that this is also what was so like terrifying to the system. And I think that all the different points in that narrative are are just wrong. I think most people were attracted to the occupation because they were pissed off about the system and wanted to be part of some movement that was going to do something about it, not because they wanted to act out some sort of make-believe world of freedom. I don't think that the occupation was necessarily terrifying to banks or politicians because it was all of a sudden there was some model of an alternative society being acted out right next to Wall Street. I think that actually the occupation was allowed to go on for months and months because it wasn't necessarily threatening to the system. And it wasn't really clear what the message of the occupation was or what it's, how it was a threat at all because there were no clear challenges to the system being voiced. There were no demands, no power bases being created. And so I think like before we even get into the consensus discussion, which is good to have, we have to also more fundamentally critique this idea that radical politics can just be this this act of ignoring the power structures of society and living on some sort of fantasy world of horizontalism where we have this hyper obsession with our own internal processes.
I'd like to discuss a paper I just read called Marx, Proudhon and the Alternatives to Capital. This talks about the intellectual battles between Marx and Proudhon, who was a leading thinker at the time on what a reformed socialist system would look like. Also, it, it talked about Marx's critique of the Gotha programme. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what this Gotha programme was and what Marx thought of it. Marx's critique of the Gotha program is is a great read if you haven't read it. And it's one of those few places where we have Marx actively talking about socialism or alternatives to capitalism. And uh, it's also very short and easy to read. So it's one of those things that's great for a book group or discussion group. Marx is critiquing a program that's been put forward by you know part of the International Working Men's Association. This There's been a proposal put forward. And he basically scribbled a lot of his angry comments about the proposal in the margins of his copy of it. And after his death, I believe it was published. Um, So it wasn't even like he was preparing this all for publication himself, as far as I understand. One of the things that's great about the critique of the Gotha program is that there's a bunch of repetition of this concept that politics can't legislate the mode of production, but actually it works the other way around that the mode of production gives us certain modes of politics and ways of organizing society. So one of the things Marx is critiquing in the Gotha program is the following statement. It's point three. It says, the emancipation of labor demands the promotion of the instruments of labor to the common property of society and the cooperative regulation of the total labor with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. At first glance, this might seem like a fairly straightforward, radical idea that we want to um, take the means of production, make them the common property of society, and that we want to distribute the proceeds of labor fairly. But what Marx goes into is this long question of what is fair? What is a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor? And through this discussion, he gets into a, a rather specific discussion of what it would take to replace capitalist social relations with some sort of non-capitalist social relations. Lots of ideas circulating in Marx's time about different ways of changing things about money and property and commodities to create some sort of new society. And Marx spent a lot of time critiquing various alternatives that were proposed. But in the Gotha program, he's putting forward some sort of alternative vision. What Marx is trying to figure out is what is the essence of capitalist social relations? Because most of his critiques of Proudhon and other utopian socialists that he critiques, people who have put forward these proposals for alternative uh, systems, the essence of his critique is usually that their solution doesn't actually replace capitalist social relations. Now, he's not saying, oh, you're, env- you're envisioning some utopian society that's going to be a disaster. But he's saying your utopian society is just a repetition of capitalist social relations. You're not escaping from, from capitalism. So, for instance, um, Proudhon has this idea of a labor money scheme. And the basic idea is that uh, Proudhon had this beef with the idea that there was inequality of exchange going on in society, especially in, for instance, a case of where supply and demand were not in balance. And let's say there's too much of a supply of something. And so, you know, let's say there are too many hot dogs being made. And so their price is depressed. That means people who are selling hot dogs are not getting as much of their labor as they uh, should be, right? They're, the product of their labor is counting for less. So there's this inequality of exchange going on. 
for Proudhon, this was like the main source of problems in a capitalist society. And so his solution is that there would be some some sort of legislative body, a, a bank or something, that when you would do an hour of labor, you would get a certificate saying that you're the product of your labor would be stamped with saying it was the product of one hour of labor. And then that then you would be able to directly trade that product with anything else that was the product of one hour labor so that there could be no inequalities of exchange and demand and supply would always be in balance, right? Or if supply or demand was too much, it wouldn't affect what you get for your labor. You still get the equivalent of your hour of work or whatever. Right. So what Marx says is, look, Proudhon has this backwards. It's not that demand and supply are out of balance because price and value are out of balance. It's the opposite. It's that prices and values only equal each other when demand and supply are in balance. So the, the labor time you put into something is only equal to the exchange value of your commodities when the demand and supply are unbalanced. He's reversed the causation. And he proposes this labor money scheme where there'd be these time chits, right, these pieces of money that would you know, specifically say that this is worth one hour of labor and everything would be exchanged exactly for their labor times. But in reality, Marx says, look, the appearance of money in society it's not a result of some sort of legislative decision. It's the result of the mode of production itself. If you are selling commodities, if you're producing things for exchange, money will emerge in society, whether or not it's in black markets or some sort of informal uh, interactions or whether it appears in some sort of formal process eventually or whether time chits themselves begin to take on the qualities of actual capitalist money. He says you can't just legislate away capitalist value relations. You can't by fiat impose some sort of non-capitalist organization of money and commodities on top of a society which is producing commodities for exchange. To give like a specific example, well, let's take the example from the paper you mentioned. Uh, let's say I'm producing typewriters and it takes me like uh, three hours to make a typewriter. Uh, and then computers come along and replace all my typewriters as computers are emerging, in order for me to still make my typewriters sellable in the market, the only way for me to get people to buy my typewriters is going to be if I decrease their price in the market below their value. If I sell my three hours of work for one hour of work or five minutes of work, just by fiat saying that my labor is equal to the labor of someone else is doing three hours of work doesn't actually match up with the economic reality that I'm doing useless social work if we're still talking about a society of production for exchange. So, so Marx says the alternative to this is to actually have a society in which we change not just something about money, but change the actual economic structure of society itself. And so people are not producing for exchange, but are producing things in common. And so in this passage in the Gotha program, he actually puts forward this proposal and it can seem puzzling at first, because at first, it almost seems like he's proposing a labor money scheme, like the Proudhonist labor money schemes that he's critiqued in the past. But there's some, something fundamentally different about it. So what is the fundamental difference in Marx's proposal? I think maybe before I answer that, I should say something about direct and indirectly social labor. In a capitalist society, our labor is indirectly social. And what we mean by that is that in order for my labor to be part of the social labor society, I have to do the labor first. And then the product of my labor enters a marketplace and is compared to all the 
products are everyone else's labor. And then market signals, it could be that my labor was efficient or it was useless labor or it was hyper-efficient, more efficient than average, or I was producing something that was in high demand in relation to supply. Those signals then are reflected back to me through price signals and inform my future labor. The labor that I'm doing is always some sort of guessing game in relationship to the average level of productivity and to the level of social demand for my labor. And I mean by saying that capitalist labor is always indirect. One of the results of this indirect labor process is that value is always a process of social averaging. There are firms and individuals that produce at below the average level of productivity, and they are punished by the market. There are people that work above the average level of productivity, and they're rewarded by the market. There's a baseline of value of a product as a social average based on the average level of productivity and the assumption of uh, supply and demand equating each other. So Proudhon has this idea that if you just stamp the product of everyone's labor with the amount of time it took, and then exchange goes on as it had before, that somehow the products of our labor will be directly social. So an hour of my work will be exactly worth an hour of your work, exactly worth an hour of everyone else's work. But what he fails to understand is that this indirectly social nature of production is not a result of some sort of conscious decisions we are making about money. It's a result of the structure of production itself. It's a result of the fact that we're producing privately for social consumption. It's a result of commodity exchange. So what Marx says is that his proposed system of labor money has no way of actually making the products of different people's labors directly social, that it just will end up resulting in the same sort of commodity relations and averaging of social productivity and average values that our current society does. So Marx says the only way to really address, in order to really replace indirectly social labor with some sort of directly social labor, we have to address the actual form of productive relations. When you say to replace indirectly social labor with directly social labor, does this speak to what the use value of that labor is? Say, for example, I'm producing you know some fairly worthless justin bieber dvd or something and that the nature of this is we could see it as adding very little to society whereas if we're dealing with directly social labor there'll be more of a thought about what is the reason for doing what we're doing not just for the motive of profit yes so in a capitalist society our labor is indirectly social because we only find out if our labor was useful after we've done the labor we only know if the use values that we have created are socially useful after labor has been done. Uh, if the labor was directly social, then that decision about whether or not our labor was useful would happen before the labor was done. Let's say the city of Boston was part of some sort of network of productive cooperatives, and it set certain output quotas per year for what it wanted to produce. It would be deciding on what it thought was socially useful production. And it will be a collective decision involving whatever sort of collective decision processes it thought was important. And of course, just like the debates over consensus and democracy, there's all sorts of different debates we could have over the formal organization of those decision-making. But regardless of the 
formal rules of that decision making, the content of those rules would be directly social labor. So one of the things that Marx is trying to really great, he doesn't just like one paragraph of the critique of the Gotha program, is say exactly what it would take in order for the labor to be directly social and not indirectly social. And what he says is this, that I go to work, I do eight hours of labor, and then I would receive not a money wage, but a certificate entitling me to eight hours worth of consumption goods. I would then take that certificate of eight hours worth of consumption goods and use it to purchase, if you want to use the word purchase, from whatever the uh, local store of goods is, my eight hours of consumption goods, minus probably deductions for certain social expenditures, since we all have to purchase somewhat of a surplus for society. So maybe eight hours of labor would actually entitle me to six hours of consumption goods, depending on what society's decisions were, right? But everyone's work, regardless of what kind of work they do, is equal to each other's. And so the, re the reason my labor would be directly social, not indirectly social, would be that there wouldn't be this process of social averaging by which our labors only count as equals once we average them together. And uh, how do I say this? In a capitalist society, our labor is only social after this process of averaging takes place, where we take into account inefficient and efficient producers, reward the efficient ones and punish the inefficient ones, and et cetera. In Marx's proposal, the opposite is happening. Everyone's labor is immediately social, immediately worth the same as everyone else's labor. In, in this process, then, we then have some kind of a organized society which decides what they want to produce for the next year. They then break up the work. Everybody goes working at it. Everybody works, say, an eight-hour day on this directly social labor because the society decided this is what we need. There won't be much waste. And then they're given the amount of goods that they've worked for, in essence. And on top of this, what does Marx say about the redistribution of the current wealth, the means of production, land or whatever? How does this tie into the critique of the Gotha program? One of the points he makes is that there's often talks in left circles about redistribution of the means of consumption, right? But Marx points out the distribution of the means of consumption is always a result of the distribution of the means of production, or it springs out of the distribution of the means of production. So in a capitalist society, we can talk to the cows come home about all the different ways that we can redistribute wealth once it's already been created. We can use Keynesian policies. We can have all sorts of welfare states. We can have charities. We can all these different ways to try to make up for the unequal distribution of wealth that's a natural result of capitalist social relations. It's, of course, naturally unequal because the means of production are privately owned. The creation of wealth is based on the exploitation of the vast majority of people. If we want to replace that with a new mode of production, we have to have a new distribution of the means of production and to some sort of collective ownership so that individuals are not siphoning off the surpluses for themselves, but so that people collectively are deciding what to do with the social surplus. There, of course, always still has to be a social surplus created, but how much of that surplus we create and what its social uses are should be a collective decision, not something made privately by a small class of people. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper?
newspaper. I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charge, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. Can you prove it isn't? This Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just borrow the Leland, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. Did any of the socialist communist revolutions of the 20th century try or manage to replace the value system? That's a really great question. I wish I could speak eloquently and for hours on that topic, but there are a lot of different theories of the USSR and, the, and China as state capitalist countries, and a lot of them differ in the reason to which they qualified those countries as state capitalists. Could you say something just about uh, why you call them state capitalist when the normal parlance is state communist? Right. Well, I think that's one of the things I, I wish I could run off for you all the different because re- people use the word state capitalism in reference to the Soviet Union in different ways. People have different reasons for calling it that. And it's not the only, you know, there, there are a lot of different left theories of the USSR. There's that it was a state capitalist, that it was some sort of formed worker state, and all sorts of other theories. There are theorists that think that, prominent left theorists that say that Really, the, the problem with the USSR wasn't the mode of production. It was just the form of politics that the USSR took. My critique of that would be that it sees the realm of politics as having some sort of sphere of autonomy outside of the mode of production, almost ignoring the capitalist value relations that seemed operative in the Soviet Union. If there's anything that I think is like a recurring theme in the different things we talked about is that how important talking about the mode of production is in relationship to the politics that spring out of it. Why do you think that none of the communist socialist revolutions managed to replace the value system? One, because they were all operating in a global capitalist market where the workers in those countries were competing against capitalist economies to sell products. Also because uh, a lot of those countries were still deeply involved with international financial markets and the borrowing money. But probably more importantly, I think, was that fundamental categories like wage labor and profit seem to still exist in those countries, which means that the products of people's labor were still taking value relations and were not directly social labor. So just because the plans were administered by states, just because productive property was owned by the state, doesn't mean that the mode of production itself was altered. I was at a talk recently by Professor David Harvey, a famous Marxist geographer, and he talked on length about the need for a change in our monetary system. One concept he mentioned was that how we could make money have a sell-by-date attached to it whereby it would prevent it from being accumulated and thus kind of diminishing the power of, say, a capitalist. What do you think of such monetary reform approaches? With all due respect to David Harvey, who I think has produced some really good stuff 
at different points in his life, I think maybe he's starting to lose his marbles. This apparently is some new idea of his. I heard him talk about it, uh, some debate, talking about oxidizable money, money that would expire at a certain point. The whole thing sounds completely batty to me. I have no idea how even practically this idea would um, have any effect on capitalism. Money takes so many different forms. And it seems to me that, I don't know if he's had put a paper together on this topic, or maybe you could fill in the gap, but it seems like money takes so many different forms. It can be paper money, it can be digits in a bank account, it can be bonds, it can be gold in a vault, it can you know take the form of commodities that reforming money functions. Capitalists sink their money into lots of different things, and it doesn't always take the form of cash reserves. You know, capitalists invest most of their profit in production, and so it's not, it's not like hoarding money is the hallmark of capitalist production. The hallmark of capitalist production is reinvesting your money constantly and the accumulation of more capital. So it seems to me like, you know, maybe there is some discussion right now in the short term about that there's hoarding going on because we're in an economic crisis. But I can't I don't see how some sort of attempt to discourage that short term hoarding. I don't know how practically that would even play out or make any sense, but I definitely don't see how it, it would in any way change anything about the fundamental nature of capital accumulation. But in general, right, there's lots of different, maybe your question is also sort of getting at that there are lots of proposals to do something about money. Money is an easy target because abstract labor takes the form of abstract wealth in the shape of money in our society. The reason that money has the power it does, it's not a result of some sort of, of, some sort of magic property that money has. It's a result of the mode of production, which is based around abstract labor. The reduction of human laboring activity to abstract units in a giant productive calculator of capital through this process of social averaging and the disciplining of labor. That creates this abstraction that is abstract labor, and that's measured with money. Attempts to reform or change the system by screwing around with the particular qualities of money, whether it's by making a local currency or some sort of labor money, or some sort of oxidizable money, like in the David Harvey example, are not going to actually change anything about money itself, because money itself is only a reflection of the organization of labor in a capitalist society. That would be, I think, the fundamental starting point for any discussion of money. When it comes then to, to political power, I see kind of two types of power. We see money power those that have the means of production and cash at hand so they can buy politicians, legislation and police, etc., etc. But we also have people power, the type of popular political action that we've seen in Egypt or even, you could say, in the Occupy movement that's rooted in the organisational structures of the society. We see how they battle in the political arena and on the street. Is it possible to imagine new societies that maintain the value element of capitalist-type production, but where the people power, the political power, is firmly dominant. So we retain the structures, perhaps, of the mode of production of capitalist society, but we create political structures that dominate in a power relation with the money power. I'm trying to think of an interesting answer other than just saying no. (laughs) (laughs) 
Crowder video. But obviously, there are different types of political forms that can be compatible with capitalist social relations. You can have fascism, you can have welfare states, you can have different political forms. But there are also a lot of very basic ways in which the mode of production is tied to the the political forms of society. In Marxist terminology, this is discussion of base and superstructure. The economic base of society being the mode of production and the superstructure being the sets of legal and governmental structure that arise from that base and also the cultural and intellectual ideas and of civil society that exist on top of that base. In many ways, the economic base of society limits the sort of state forms that you can have in a capitalist society in a lot of particularly direct ways, I think. In your question about what a people's power is, you know, if there was some sort of, sounds like you're asking if a capitalist social relations could have some sort of political form that was less dominated by the influence of the capitalist class and politics and more influenced by some sort of real democracy. You know, let's say you had like the most possible democratic organization of the political system. That political system would still not be able to change the basic structure of property relations, exploitation, legal and financial things associated with that that are part of a capitalist society. What I'm trying to get at is that if we were to look, say, strategically at how you would develop, say, for example, a non-capitalist economy, what are the options for, for you, say, as radical people to perhaps get to a situation where the power of the capitalist production can be relegated to a secondary position? I see, I see. Could we see political structures that actually manage to tame that in an, perhaps a non-revolutionary, schismatic way. I think maybe you're, if I understand correctly, we're talking about like, if our goal is to replace capitalist social relations, what sort of steps are possible toward that goal? Or even if there are intermediary steps such that they make the actual reality and the lived experience of that capitalist production so radically different from our own experience. I think one of the things that, I mean, I don't have, I've yet to make the 10-minute YouTube video about um, how to make the revolution happen, but there are a few things I can say, but I think at least I'll throw out some like sort of orienting things that might help frame, and we can, you know, talk through it more, but one is that sometimes this idea of transition thrown around, the transitioning society between capitalism and socialism, I think that one of the things that's crucial about Marx's value theory and the way that his value theory is tied to his theory of base and superstructure, the relation of legal and political systems to the economic base of society, is that there is no such thing as a transitioning point value reduction. You can't have a society that's like half producing value and half not producing value. It's like a quantity quality distinction, right? Sometimes the idea of a transitional society is painted in sort of a quantitative way, like we have 20% capitalism and 80% not capitalism. But I think Marx is telling us that it's really a quality thing. There's a qualitative difference between capitalist value production and non-capitalist value production. 
that does not mean that we can't have radical movements, that we can't have left parties in power that are doing radical things to move a society towards socialism. That's not what the point is. The point is that we have to be aware of the way in which the basic economic, the social relations of, of capitalism dictate certain realities about society to us, that it constrain the realm of possibility, and also create these ruptures and discontinuities and crises that want to push us forward into new types of post-capitalist social relations. So I'm trying to think of a practical example of that that would be useful. Let's say, you know, five years ago, economic crisis struck and miraculously a left government came into power in, in a city, state, or even nationally. And their first program was to take all the abandoned factories and houses and collectivize them, uh, make them collective property, and they have, you know, worker-owned people doing things in their factories, right? We could probably agree that this might be a really crucial, great step forward for actually building some alternative to capitalism. But at the same time, we'd have to be aware that that these cooperatives, these cooperative factories would still be engaged in capitalist labor. They would be selling the products of labor in the market. Their labor would still be indirectly social. So that basic aspect of the, the law of value would still be disciplining their labor. That basic aspect of capitalist social relations wouldn't have been changed. And we would not want to delude ourselves into thinking that some of this was, we were living in some sort of transitional society that was somehow less capitalist, the basic mode of production would not have changed, even with this rise of cooperative factories everywhere. So that leaves us with the kind of question, what percentage of the world would have to change to a non-capitalist productive system for it to be able to exist on its own? You know, we had practically the entire continent of Asia between Russia and China under a communist control, yet they still didn't manage to do it, even though they probably had every raw material on the planet. Yeah. Well, man, like I said, I wish that I had... I'm sure there is a great answer to that question. I'm sure also sure there's a much better answer to your question about characterizing the nature of those countries as state capitalist or value producing than I've given you. If you wanted to do a show in whenever you finish reading your books. Oh man, when I finish reading my books, that'll be a great day. <laughs> I don't know. I assume that a revolution is messy and that there's lots of starts and stops and there's lots of mistakes and there's a lot of things that are not completed as quickly as one would hope they would be completed. I think one of the problems with the Soviet Union was that it became clear from the beginning that it was not possible to, you know, it was stated specifically that they had not reached the higher phase of communism, that this was still a, a society in transition. One of the mistakes that was made, I think, theoretically was that the goal wasn't to replace the law of value, but it was declared that the law of value was the operating theory of the Soviet Union. Their goal was to do the law of value better than the, the capitalist West. Marx's theory of value was used as an accounting principle to try to discipline labor more rather than as a something that was we were supposed to be getting away from. There was, you know, there was a fundamental theoretical problem. Now, that theoretical problem really probably arose as a result of the material need for the Soviet Union to compete with the West and to modernize and industrialize as rapidly as possible. So 
you know, it's not just there was a bunch of bad theory floating around in the Soviet Union. It was that there were these very serious material needs to industrialize rapidly and to discipline labor. And so what happens is that Marx's idea of overcoming the law of value gets completely flipped on its head and turned into using the theory of value to discipline labor and outproduce the capitalist West. They needed to outproduce the capitalist West in order to allow for the subsequent higher phases of communist reality where they would be able to disregard this theory of value. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not an expert on the whole evolution of the law of value in the Soviet Union. I don't even know if by the time Stalin is actively using the term the law of value as an orienting principle, I don't even know if by that point they're still envisioning their phase where they've abandoned the law of value. I'm not even sure if that was still a goal at that point. I, I don't, I, it could have, I don't, I don't know. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Brandon. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, great, great to talk to you, Tom. On this episode, you heard the intro, Rhinoceros, by Brendan Cooney's Rhinoceri Trio and the reggae man G.T. Moore singing of Utopia. You also heard an excerpt from the classic film Citizen Kane accompanied by La Danse de Puck by Claude Debussy, some crashing, banging and walloping with Alan Partridge and you are now listening to Dire Straits with their 80s classic Money for Nothing. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode from Alpha to Omega. Yeah. Look at them yo-yos, that's the way you do it. You play the guitar on the MTV. That ain't working, that's the way you do it. Money for nothing and your chicks for free. Now that ain't working, that's